I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. The United States is not the only global power that's about to undergo a leadership change. In Beijing on November the 8th, the ruling Communist Party will begin a crucial national congress which will see the unveiling of a new leadership team for the country. But this leadership transition is taking place against a troubled background. The economy is slowing, tensions are rising in a territorial dispute with Japan. Bochi Lai, who once anticipated promotion in the leadership reshuffle, is instead about to go on trial. And the outgoing Prime Minister, Wen Jiabao, has just been accused in the New York Times of using his position to accumulate massive wealth for his family. These allegations were suppressed in the Chinese official media, but have been circulated widely on social media. Joining me to discuss the state of China now are two of the FT's experts. In the studio, James King, who's editor of our newsletter, China Confidential. And on the line from Beijing is David Pilling, our Asia editor. David, if I could start with you, how have the allegations about Wen Jiabao affected the atmosphere coming up to the Congress? Well, uh, as you know, these uh, allegations were not published in the Chinese press. But tens of millions of Chinese now have um, access to the Internet and are very capable of leaping over the Great Firewall. There are also services like uh, Weibo, which is a Twitter equivalent. And so this has quickly bounced back into China and I think is a, is a great talking point. I think uh, people are probably not too surprised that the leaders in the standing committee and their families are wealthy. It may not be quite as big a revelation as we perhaps imagine, although for foreign correspondents to read these details is certainly very interesting. But I think there is a kind of pervasive sense of corruption at all levels and increasing uh, resentment against that. So I think uh, that's the background, that uh, people are no longer really willing to tolerate or certainly much more resentful of this pervasive corruption that they see all around them. So, so is it fair, I mean, to describe the Communist Party going into this important transition as in crisis? I mean, if you say that there's now a new anger about corruption, we've had the whole Bochi Lai case, or is it just noise and in fact this is going to be a relatively, probably a smooth transition with a new leadership emerging by the new year? In a funny sort of sense, it's a relatively smooth transition. I mean, probably um, one of only two smooth transitions since 1949. Of course, the whole Bolshevik affair wasn't convenient, although it was convenient for some members of the Standing Committee and some members of the leadership because I think they saw Bo as a real threat because he didn't work through the party. He worked with um, popular appeal to people directly. And so to get rid of him was probably actually seen as a good thing, although it meant that the Communist Party had to kind of wash its dirty linen in public because people saw some of the corruption. They saw that somebody close to somebody who was supposedly in line for the standing committee, that they were involved allegedly in a murder plot and a cover-up and all sorts of strange goings-on. So that's the downside. The upside is that they've got rid of Bo 
And there is a reasonably smooth transition to Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. It's been well telegraphed, really, for a number of years now. So in that sense, the transition is quite smooth. I think the, the difference is that you've got a whole new set of problems that the new leadership has to deal with. And some of those problems, I think, have been, in a sense, sort of kicked down the road for the new leadership to deal with. And they're going to have to start to deal with that pretty quickly. James King, if I can bring you in here, I mean, one of the problems that some people at least see is a slowing economy. And yet, on the other hand, people have been saying for some time, well, China can't keep growing at this breakneck speed of 9 10% a year. Maybe it does need to slow down. How do you read, A, the situation of the economy and B, the political implications of a slowing economy? I think uh, at the moment what's interesting is that the economy has been uh, slowing down for the past three quarters uh, this year. But uh, what we have just begun to see in September, and also according to China Confidential data that we're collecting on the ground in China in October, is a modest uh, recovery, uh, rebound, stabilisation in growth. Generally speaking, I'd say that the slowdown of this year creates an impetus behind uh, the policy nexus in China to push forward on some fairly difficult reforms that China has been either putting off or delaying for several years now, uh, whether or not those reforms will actually happen after the new government is in place. Uh, And uh, don't forget that this Congress happens now in November, but then the government doesn't take its seats until March next year. But when we think about the types of reforms that may occur, one of the big outstanding questions is whether or not the new government will get to grips with the state-owned enterprises, which for a long time, and especially over the last decade, have increased their power. They sit like an oligopoly in many sectors of the economy and uh, drain a lot of the vigour from the private sector. And it's a really big question as to whether or not the government will be strong enough to tackle those oligopolistic powers and subject those state and enterprises to greater reform and uh, free market liberalisation. There's a whole slew of other questions as well, whether or not uh, financial reforms will continue strongly. And the dog that hasn't barked is whether or not the new government will be uh, brave enough to attempt some kind of meaningful political reform, subjecting uh, the single party state to greater checks and balances from outside its own power structure, possibly helping to root out some of the corruption which has so marred the run up to this Congress. So James, what is your view of that? I mean, do we know anything really about uh, Xi Jinping and, and the people around him? Are they liable to be reformers or is it all just speculation at the moment? There are plenty of varying versions of who might be in the Politburo and whether it'll be seven or nine leaders when, when it happens. But at the moment, uh, the most commonly tipped lineup of Chinese officials in that Politburo does appear to be fairly reformist in character. Having said that, it's also a compromise between those officials which are loyal to Hu Jintao, the incumbent president and general secretary of the the Communist Party, and those who are loyal to Xi Jinping, the uh, supposed incoming president and general secretary of the Communist Party. And there does seem to be some kind of friction between those two camps. My sense is that there will be a continuation of some of the key reforms that we've seen over the last few years, particularly to the financial system, particularly to the welfare system, uh, effectively creating more welfare for 
those people that have been somewhat left behind in the last uh, three decades of reform and opening. But I'm afraid I'm not that confident that the new administration will be courageous enough to take on the huge entrenched interests of the state-owned enterprise sector or courageous enough to take on really significant democratic reform. David, of course, all this uh, domestic political drama is taking place against a background of international tension with uh, these clashes in the in the seas with Japan and rival ships kind of blaring messages at each other. My assumption, I guess, had been that this was all theatre and that it wouldn't get out of hand. But it seems to be going on for quite a long time. And I gather the Chinese are are making more bellicose noises. What's your reading of the state of Chinese-Japanese relations and how how dangerous it is, really? Well, I think it has got out of hand, and I think it's extremely dangerous And how Xi Jinping deals with this, whether he decides to kind of tamp it down as he may be able to do as a, as a new leader coming in, or whether, in fact, he decides to sort of prove his political power by raising the stakes even more and giving himself room to maneuver domestically, as some people have suggested, I think will be a big test. I mean, my reading of it is that China probably would have let the status quo carry on. The status quo was really that the two sides did these islands, but didn't take it any further. They kind of obeyed Deng Xiaoping's dictum to kind of kick it into the future. They would make noises about it, but not really let it get out of hand. But then we had this situation where the Tokyo governor, uh, Shintaro Shihara, and said that he would sort of buy the islands and develop them. And to stop that, the Japanese government has nationalized the islands. Now, they said, and, and, and I think probably believed, that they would calm down the situation by doing this. But China certainly does not see it like that at all. They see this as Ishihara and the Japanese government colluding to change the status quo. And China sees that it has no option but to react. And reacting means sending ships, turning up the diplomatic noise um, extremely loud. Could, could um, we actually see know, them sort of, uh, you know, coming to blows? Um, I certainly wouldn't predict that, but I don't think it can be ruled out. I mean, there is very strong conviction among the Chinese people that, that these islands are theirs. I mean, in a sense, they're five uninhabited islands and who cares? But there's a lot more at stake. You know, there's national pride, there's unfinished business from history, there's the ability to maneuver in the seas and to break beyond what um, has sometimes been called the first island chain. And there are resources, fish, potentially oil and gas, although actually I think that those are not the most important factor at play. I think the possibility of miscalculation is quite high, really. And I think a test of Xi Jinping will be to try to roll back from this, because otherwise I think it could get pretty nasty. Okay, James, perhaps the last word from you. I mean, looking at all the various issues that you have to cover, the economy, the political transition, and now these diplomatic uh, tensions, how do you see the state of China at the moment? Are we looking at a country that is still on a fairly stable trajectory towards modernization and economic growth is 30 years we've seen of rapid economic growth and development or are we at a break point we're certainly at a crossroads and i i would in this regard quote the president of the communist party's chosha magazine uh, who said recently that uh, china really did need to undertake significant reforms to its political structure otherwise it faced a dead end and i think that this is accurate not only 
morally, politically, the massive corruption scandals that we've all been hearing about over the last few months, I think, has really shaken the timbers of China's body politic. But it's also true with the economy, because China is facing an inflection point now between its old growth model, which served it for the last uh, 34 years or so, using investment to drive the economy. It now needs to shift to an economy driven more by consumer spending and services. That is underway, but that will require careful management going forward. And diplomatically and strategically, China is also at a crossroads. It needs to work out how it can be more assertive without alienating various former allies and partners around the world. So the new administration, when it comes in, faces really historic challenges, and uh, it'll be a very, very tough job. James King here in London. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks also to David Pilling on the line from Beijing and to Martin Staber here in the studio in London. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.